It's bad ink, Jim, but not as we know it. Hello, cuz this is Big. Welcome to the Bashcast, brought to you by BookieBashing.net. Better get 100.1 and above. This is Bashcast episode number 165. A cameo from the Tories. It is 17 minutes past 3pm on Sunday the 13th of December. 2020. Coming up in this afternoon's Bashcast, it's the PDC Darts World Championships next week. Let's have a look at the edges and the angles. Three golf tournaments in one weekend last week. Two from the European Tour, one from the PGA. Let's have a look at how we did. And uh, looking in particular some paddy, what's odds paddies that they're pricing up along with Betfair? After the break, the Times have an article about a review of gambling legislation that's coming up next week. And let's talk about the social media platform Discord, all of that and more. Coming up on the Bashcast this afternoon. First, Camden. Fact 
the golf. I don't want to talk about the golf. I don't want to talk about the golf this week, so let's not talk about the golf. Right, let's talk about the golf. Oh, come on. Three tournaments in one week. Credit to the European Tour. Uh, a really impressive um, sort of catch-up that they've been able... Because they haven't got the sponsors' money, or at least as much as they did have... Um, um, last year, of course, because there's no crowds and there's no second, but they've managed to get they've managed to get a really sort of decent schedule together, and they've had two tournaments in one week last week, which was the South Africa Open 2020, and also the Golf and Dubai Championships leading up to the DP World Championships. So uh, super impressive that they were able to do that. There was also the Mayakoba Classic over in uh, Mexico at the same time. So I didn't have that many players in each tournament. We had six players in the golf in Dubai, only four in South Africa, and six players in the PGA as well. And after round one, it was looking outrageous. We had two firsts and a second. There was at one point that, well, I mean, it's okay. It's only round one, but we had all three firsts. Uh, and they were Dean Burmester 35 to 1. We only had four players in the South Africa Open, and we had all four players being in the top 15 um, out of how many players were in that tournament? Lots. South Africa Open, there were 151. So we had all four players in the top 15, three players in the top 10, and the leader in Dean Burmester at 35 to 1. In the DP World Championships, um, Andy Sullivan shot 61 on the first day to be two shots clear. Um, and he was looking really good, really powerful. And over in the Mayakoba Classic, believe it or not, it was Tom Hogue, 200 to 1 in the eight places at Boyle Sports, who was in, in first, I think he did finish uh, day one just in second position. He got a 66, as did... Um, Emiliano Grillo. Um, or was he? Uh, yeah, Russell Knox sh shot a 65. Ended up finishing 69-68-71 to finish outside of the top 20. Uh, and then day two over back over in Dubai. Andy Sullivan follows up his 61 with a 66. And he's now miles in front. He's won it. I mean, he's won the Golf and Dubai Championship. So we take our... We take our... Um, Sights down to South Africa, where we see that Connorsheim, Matej Schwab, Justleton, and Dean Burmester, our four options, are now all in the top four after rounds one and rounds two. We have a 67 69 from Burmester. We have a 72 70, which is good enough from Connorsheim. 72-67 from Juice Luton. 67-72 from Matthias Schwab. It was a, they set up difficult conditions on round two. Uh, round two, And we were flying at this point. We were absolutely flying. Going into round three, at the end of it, we still had two leaders and a second place. And again, it was the same people. Um, Andy Sullivan extending his lead in the Golf and Dubai Championships. Dean Burmester shooting 67, 69, 71. And Connor Syme going 72, 70, 69. And we're looking really good in those two tournaments and in the Mayakoba 
200 to 1. Tom Hogue still up there. 66, 67. He shoots a 65. And he is in second position. Everyone's like, no way are we getting a 200 to 1. So there you go. We had uh, all three tournaments. We're smashing them. Um, we were about a 1.3 to return a winner out of one of the three tournaments. We had Andy Sullivan so far ahead. We had Tom Hogue. And we had all four players in contention in the South Africa Open. I went um, golfing on Sunday morning. Um uh, on my way to golf, I had the disappointment because, of course, the the the, uh, the golf in Dubai is an early morning start in terms of Greenwich Mean Time, and saw that Andy Sullivan, who was still leading on the fifteenth hole, he just got caught by the French. <laughs> There's no other way of saying it. Um, his his round where he went. What was he there? One, two under par on the front nine, and then he couldn't shoot under par on the last nine. How would you not shoot under par on the last nine? I mean, he shot on the on the on day one. He shot six under par on the back nine. On day two, he shoots four under par, and he can't shoot under par on the last day. Uh, he was caught by Lorenzo Vera, who shot three under par on the last nine, and he was caught by Antoine Rosner, who shot one two an eagle to take him four and then the, he birded the 18th to make him five under par on the back nine and that was the difference shooting five under par on the back nine for rosner shooting three under par on the back nine for lorenzo vera and andy sullivan the only stretch of nine holes he couldn't shoot under par on was the back nine it's all about bringing it home it's all about having your holding your nerve and bringing it home and so he finished for a Full place in the tournament, obviously, um, in fourth position. Um, was it was the profit in that tournament? Well, we also got we had Langask voided because he got the COVIDs. Ross Fisher actually returned in the way that we were staking it more money than Andy Sullivan, even though he finished seventh and was never really in it. But he, did, he finished birdie, birdie, birdie in the 15th, 16th, 17th to squeeze into 7th place. Overall in that tournament, we had um, 6 golfers. One was voided, so we had 5 live golfers and 2 placed um, for a very decent return. I mean, it was a good payday, that tournament, even though we didn't get the winner. And it would have been a hell of a payday if we got the winner. Taking our attention down to the 4 in contention down in South Africa... Unfortunately, of the four, Connor Syme drifted away with a 71. Juice Luton really drifted away with a 74. Matthias Schwab drifted away with a 73. All three of those guys choosing to shoot the worst round of the week right on the last round. And Burmester shot a 71. None of our guys under par. Betsy Danehut and Donaldson both shot 69. So we got the place for Burmester, who finished in fourth position. He had been looking good. That was just one single place at 35 to 1. We were only on four golfers there, but we did make a loss in that tournament because Juice Leeton and Matej Schwab were, pretty, were shorties, and so we were staking a little bit higher on them. Takes us over to the Mayakoba. Can Tom Hogue, of all people, bring it home? And actually, he was looking good. Um, he was looking strong all the way through the fourth round. Um, 
he'd shot one under par and then was just, you know, he wasn't making any mistakes. He wasn't making any bogeys. On the 16th, though, I think he realized he was three under par. He probably needed to get to five under par to be in contention with Adam Long, Aaron Wise, and Victor Hovland. So he went for it. He ended up bogeying the 16th, and that took him out of contention of the tournament. He was just a little bit too far behind. He ended up in third position, which at 200 to 1, you really can't complain with, especially since he was 134% EV. So we're staking relatively higher on him. It was a very decent payday from um, from Tom Hogue. And Brendan Todd also finished in um, eighth position in a dead heat with three other, four other people, sorry. Um, so William Hill being eight places, so you get a one-quarter dead heat, essentially the same as if you had... Uh, staked one quarter stakes on him um but overall across the three tournaments just from the places from the one two three four well from the four places in the place with a one quarter dead heat um we ended up returning i'm just doing some mental maths here roughly uh about a 60 percent roi but imagine if just one of them had won it really would have gone into stellar and it was one of those that you stake, you put up the golfers, uh, you win, you, you win with a very decent ROI, and it feels like a complete and utter robbery. It really does. It just felt like we were robbed. I wasn't, I wasn't entirely happy uh, just bringing up the um, results for the year. So we've um, split the calendar year into 12-month periods from the day, from the tournament that we started officially recording, and the rules for recording are quite simple. It's I have to put the bets up before the start of the tournament on the site for everyone to see. Can't change them. Put the stakes up. Can't change them. Um, and then we record the profit and loss of each tournament at the end. It's really transparent. It's really as clear as that, right? Uh, I'm selecting in the region of about 10%, maybe 8 to 15% uh, in extreme when there's extreme value on each tournament. Um, each week from the tracker, sometimes the tracker throws up, you know, 40%. To be plus EV, and so I'm cherry picking some golfers from that. Generally, the higher EV ones, and also, but I don't just want a load of um, 500 to one shots. I also have, I'll mix in some lower EV, but um, more favourite prices. In year one, which was the 20th of May 2019 to the 20th of May 2020, I had a staking plan that I recommended based on a £1,000 starting bank. Oh, yes, it's aggressive. No, I don't mean that's all the money you have in the world. For the love of God, if you turn around and say all the money I had in the entire world went onto the staking plan um, at Bookie Bashing and we went bust, get a grip. Of course we did. The odds of that happening weren't marginal. My days, right? Bankrolls are there to be busted and then you come up with a new idea when you've busted it, you reload or whatever. But good God. Uh, we got off to a good start on the 20th of May 2019 and up to the 20th of May 2020, we bet on exactly 70 tournaments, 617 bets, so about nine, just under nine, eight-ish players per tournament, 13 winners, £2,617 profit. So that £1,000 bankroll turned into £3,617. That was year one. Year two, which obviously has been interrupted by lockdowns and so on and so forth. We've had much fewer tournaments, but between the 20th of May 2020 
and the 11th of December 2020. We've had 46 um, tournaments. Just the three winners, so much fewer winners than last year, but still decent profit. And I think a lot of that profit is coming down to the fact that we've had a lot of places in those 46 tournaments. Um, Split between the PGA and the European Tour. Last year, we did much better on the PGA than the European Tour. This year, we're doing better on the European Tour than we did on the PGA. Uh, but it's just, it's almost 50-50. It's £600 profit uh, from 1,450 states on the European Tour. £544 profit from 2,700 states on the PGA. For a total of, in year two, £4,230 states and £1,145 profit. And that means across the two years, which is about, uh, seven months plus 12, 19 months with the lockdown in the middle um, we've staked £11,901 on the site and we've returned £3,762 profit in those 19 months which is 116 tournaments um, 990 bets, so an average of roughly nine players per tournament, 16 winners in that time. I really should count the places, but then that gets confusing because it depends on the average number of places paid, doesn't it? So, But uh, in this week, in this particular week, at the beginning of December in 2020, across those three tournaments, we're going to need a crime reference number because we were absolutely robbed. From a winner. So next Tuesday, the 15th of December, Christmas officially starts down at the Alley Pally. It is the PDC World Championships of Darts. So this year it's the only World Championships of Darts. We've had um, the PDC and the um the world's darts federation going head to head the bdo but the bdo was managed like a farce went into liquidation last year um and uh, there is no uh bdo world championship so then there's only going to be one world champion just now current world champion peter wright 2020 we had three different world championships in 2000 uh, world champions in 2018 2019 and 2020 we had Rob Cross, 2018, Michael Van Gerwen, 2019, um, Peter Wright, 2020. What's definitely odd is how the averages have come down. Uh, Phil Taylor, 2009, sort of peaked with an average of 110.94. Barney, runner-up with a century average that year. Um, and even the next year, 104.38 in the 2010. But... It was a downward spiral. Gary Anderson winning in 2015 with 97.68. Uh, and again in 2016 with 99.2. When MVG won it in 2017, the averages went up again to 107 with Rob Cross, but then back down to 102 with MVG and Peter Wright. So um, there isn't much... Is it, It's odd in terms of the length of format that they play. You know, 10... Um, sorry, best of... 13 sets in the final, first to seven. That's a lot of uh, legs of darts. And so you'd think that the averages, the career averages, would even out. But there has definitely been um, some downward trend. 
since the peak Phil Taylor years. And look at this. Phil Taylor won in 1995, 1996, 1997, 1998, 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002. John Park won in 2003, beating Phil Taylor. 7-6 in the final. Phil Taylor won in 2004, 2005, and then a couple of years off, and he won in 2009, 2010. By about 2010, he was probably the most... He was like the greatest sportsman of his sport in the world. Like, you couldn't have named another sport where he was so where someone was so dominant as Phil Taylor was in 2010, with 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 20-odd world titles in, in 15 years. 20 world titles in 15 years. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 world titles in 15 years. So, uh, An edge that seems to always be mentioned is a nine dart finish in the tournament which is a um um which is an event that hasn't happened that often recently and i think it hasn't happened because of these reduction in um um in the average scores you know the first happened in 1990 there wasn't another one until 2009 when phil taylor had that 110.9 average the only time somebody has won um, with an average over 110. And then, so there was a nine data then, and in 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, and 2016, by which time the probability of a nine data uh, is becoming odds on. In fact, 2012 was amazing. I remember watching it. Um, there'd already been a, a nine data. Dean Wynn Stanley hit one um, against Vincent van der Voort in the second round. But then Michael Van Gerwen threw a nine darter in the third leg of the fifth set against James Wade. And then the immediate leg after. So huge excitement around the place. Like the, the, the crowd goes nuts. The commentators going nuts. It's brilliant. People in the fancy dress with the beer flying. And it's all, it's fantastic. And then in the very next leg, the fourth leg of the fifth set, Van Gerwen hit eight perfect darts. And it looked like he was going to go back to back... Um, nine darters and then just missed the ninth and in fact the drama the spectacle of him hitting 17 perfect darts but not landing the 18th it was exhausting to watch absolutely brilliant the first guy that did it by the way paul Lim against jack mckenna won fifty-two thousand pounds in 1990 all the way back in 1990 um when the prize pool for first place was you know less than fifty thousand pounds uh, and yet, when MVG did that in 2012, he only walked away with £15,000, less than a quarter of them, because he had to share it, of course, with Dean Stanley, and because, you know, they, they figured it was so common that they couldn't be given away such such a high prize for it. So, yeah, it happened in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2016. Didn't happen in 2015 when Gary Anderson won. 2017 didn't happen. 2018 didn't happen. 2019 didn't happen. 2020, it didn't happen. And yet, the market at the bookmaker is so outrageously biased. Um, uh, people really are only betting on there being a nine data yes at the bookmaker right uh, on the exchange um 80 percent of the money that's been traded has been on the yes side even though there's going to be some cross match in there 
with Betfair. It's sort of traded between 2.06 and 2.25 for a yes. Now, considering there wasn't one in 2020, there wasn't one in 2019, there wasn't one in 2018, there wasn't one in 2017, there hasn't been a nine data in five of the last six PDC World Championships. People are scratchy um, from the different formats, the no crowds and things like that. The crowds aren't there to pump people up. Um, although I think a limited crowd will be allowed in the Ali Pali, but it will be a shadow of its drunken, boozy self. So the fact that no is trading just below even money has to be a massive value bet. Does it not? Do you not think so? I don't know. I, I if, if I had a gun pointed to me, my head, I'd definitely be taking the no all the way down to 1.6 or so. Uh, 1.77 available on the exchange just now. Um, we have the new darts tool up at bookiebashing.net, which is the X180s tool. So um, this is an edge that we've had for a while, and all we've done is we've aggregated the edge and all the different mathematical techniques into one single model. We're only really looking at 180s, so we're letting the, the smart people, the 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 big money they can all focus on you know outright winner match winner which is a very related thing they can look at that which is a lot more associated with some more complex things like um, average checkouts um, average scores and things but we're just really looking at 180s and we have an edge here in 180s because we can use live lines and follow the market makers and the smart money very closely and the bookmakers price these markets up with imprecision. They don't follow movement. So we can link the games together and we can determine from the diff an average of different sources around what the expected 180s is for every player. And just from the expected 180s of every player, we can just do some mathematics to work out value in different um, 180s markets. And as the money comes in and shifts the expectations, the lines do change in real time. We started monitoring these in July 2020, uh, asterisk sample size, asterisk, but, you know, I can't make any more bets appear in this sample size before the PDC World Championship. So it just is what it is. Um, the So each bet went up on the tracker and is recorded in the results section in the hub. We've had 147 bets, even though it's not snooker, it starts. Uh, 53 winners and 94 losers with an average odds of 4.64. 4. The average EV of these 180s bets was 107.3% and the profit loss betting to £200 liability on each bet of the 147 is plus £2,151.51 for 113% ROI. So, again, as I say, it's 147 bets. We could have been betting good bets and they could have been down. We could have been betting bad bets and they could have been up. But that that is what it is. Um we're very confident that they are all, of course, good bets. So um, what we have on the tool, we have the list of games um, being played at the PDC World Championships. Each session is divided in, up into an afternoon session where they're starting at 12.15, 1.10 and 2.05 and an evening session where they're playing at 6.15, 7.10 and 8.05. And as is the format with all of these knockout tournaments, such as Wimbledon, darts and everything like that, half of the games are in the first round. 
well, roughly half of the games. Um, the format of the tor- tournament is you have 96 players, um, the highest 32 are seeded into the second round. But I mean, roughly half of the games are in the first round, and you know the majority of the games are in the first round and the second round. By the time you get to the semi-finals, there are only three games le- left, or the quarterfinals, there's only seven games left. So just in terms of the number of the volume of matches, it's obvious that the most amount of value will be in rounds one and rounds two. So kicking off next week, it sort of it really it immediately gets going and all the value is there. The bookmakers price these games up and they aggregate them into sessions. So as we say, the afternoon session and the evening session. And what we see in them is we have the number of 180s in the session. Um the player to have the most 180s in the session and the game to have the most 180s in the session and because we know the expectation of each player to throw some 180s we can predict how many 180s everyone's going to throw and then compare them against each other in the session and work out the odds of those ourselves and most of the time the book there's no value at the bookmaker and occasionally there might be one and this is one of the weird things about seeing them on the track because i've seen someone say how can there always be value I said, well, you didn't see the five bookmakers I looked at when there wasn't value. You know, there's a very similar thing with the Paddy Power, what odds Paddy is. Like every single game there seems to be value in this particular market. I was like, no, the thing is I look at 10 games and when there's value in that market, I might find it in two games and they go on the tracker. I don't put the eight games up on the tracker that you don't see. So it's not every game. And the same with this. Not every bookmaker will have value in the player to have the most 180s in the session. Uh, but it can be good. Um, and the same with the most 180s in the game. So uh, for starters, a bookmaker could offer a 3 to 1 on, say, over 25 180s. So we've got a calculator for that, uh, just over 180s in the session. A uh, bookmaker could price up the player to have the most 180s, or he could price up the match to have the most 180s. And we can benchmark all of those. Also, we have the in-game stats for each game, which is the player odds to win, which comes from the fair odds at Betfair exchange. That's just a bit of logic around use the last traded price as long as it's between the back and the lay. And if it's below the back, use the back price. And or if not, use the lay price or return nothing. Um, the match expected 180s, the player expected 180s. Player to have the most 180s, which is sort of derived through a simulation. Player to win and both players to throw over X 180s, which is something that Paddy Power and Betfair Sportsbook have done in the past. Betfair have done it a couple of times as well. So it's like, you know. Ryan Joyce to win and both players to score over two 180s, for example, or player to win and throw over four 180s. So all of those can be, uh, ver- the variables can be edited. So we can have player to win over 99 180s, player to win over one 180s, although there's you know, a finite number of 180s any player can have in a match. Um, so that model, uh, we did a lot of work on that over the summer and over the autumn. It's now up, it's running. Um, uh, you can go over there. It builds a little pie chart in real time so you can immediately see who the favorite is to have the most 180s in the session. But um, 
a bit of a clue here. The favourite is very rarely the guy who's got value because most mug punters like to bet on favourites and bookmakers are very wary of offering value on them. We normally find value further down in the field and we never find value on Michael Van Gogh and not in the most 180s in the session and not in the most 180s in the match. Again, most mug punters like to bet on Michael Van Gogh and when most mug punters like to bet on something, the bookmakers simply do not have to offer value. Why would you? You know, you don't have to push the odds out when most people are putting money down on that. And the weird thing about Michael is that he is the number one seed in this tournament. And yet he doesn't throw that many 180s because he's a very big fan of switching down to 19s when he isn't feeling it. Just out of no, Or maybe just to get practice, he'll just be up at the 20s and then for no reason whatsoever. Next time he comes up to the hockey, he's throwing down at the 19s and he'll stay down at the 19s for... Um, for a leg at a time or for two legs at a time and that um, works very well for him it works very badly for uh, 180s on the flip side of the coin D'Souza will stay up at that treble 20 bed um, come hell or high water and is a very often favourite to get the most 180s. Sorry, not the favourite, but value to get the most 180s um, because he's a lesser known player he's less likely to win the match but Damn, does he throw a lot of 180s in every game. And so we've seen plenty of value with uh, D'Souza. So um, uh, the Yaya's and the Colos are all going to be starting next week down at the Alley Pally. Check out the um, the X180s model we've got on bookiebashing.net. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, that's just about enough for the first half. Guys, you are listening to the Bashcast, and it's brought to you by Bucky Bashing.
Welcome back to the Bashcast. That do it, the opening song by Smooth and Terrell from their album Stratus Blur 2020. And that whole album from beginning to end is an absolute funkadelic slammer in the bookie bashing. And by the way, any song that can brazenly take the sample from Primal Screams Loaded, which in return was a sample from the 1966 biker movie The Wild Angels, which is just what is it that you want to do? We want to be free. We want to be free to do what we want to do. And we want to get loaded and we want to have a good time. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to have a good time. We're going to have a party. Then you got to give them respect. Because that was the, the actual greatest album in the entire world. To my daughter there for her first ever concert. Aged one, Bobby Gillespie actually did scream a delicate for once in his entire life. Instead of just getting smashed on the drugaroonies and letting everyone down. In the bookie bashing news, and in the background, whilst I do the bookie bashing news, uh, I've got Sociedad versus Iber on. Um, this is one of those that I was talking about earlier, where I'm on all the goals, all the cards, and all the corners. Well, listen to this 65 minutes gone, two goals in the match, uh, four cards, and seven corners. <laughs> 30 minutes to do that. And of all of those six components, I'm going to update the Bookie Bashing News during that um, because that clean sweep will return a happy Sunday for me as opposed to... What was the other one? I wasn't going to talk about this, but I'm just going to do this as well before the Bookie Bashing News. FC... How do you pronounce that Danish team? Mtitiland? Not that, is it? How do you pronounce the Danish team? FC, FC Midtjylland, whoever they are. Um, they were playing Liverpool uh, in the Champions League when Liverpool were really short. They were like some odds on price to beat um, Midtjylland. Uh, and I was doing my um, player XG model, which I talked about last time, where I'm trying to identify the steamers, the steamers of the day. And on... My model, money had come in for A. Schultz. And I, I'll confess I don't know his first name. A. Schultz. Not the Snoopy cartoon creator, but... Oh, no, I do know his first name because it says it on my results sheet here. Alexander Schultz, the FC Midland. Um, is he midfield? Yeah, uh, FC Midland midfielder, right? So money had come in for this dude. Oh, no, he's defender. He's not even midfielder. Get this. 300 to 1, 300 to 1 to score two plus goals I made him with fair odds of 286. Okay, the bet loses 285 times out of 286. But who doesn't mind a little bit of variance? Well, Schultze, in the 62nd minute, when Meatland were 1-0 down to Salah's first minute goal, who knew he's on penalties from Meatland? And they got a penalty and they equalised to make it 1-1. And then 15 minutes later, Alexander Schultz puts the ball in the back of the net for his second goal of the game, and then it was disallowed for being offside. Can you believe it? 300... You don't need many 300 to 1s. In fact, I think the highest odds I've ever had come in the mug bets, 200 to 1, which was uh, Japan on the exchange... 220, I think. 
to beat South Africa. So I think Schultze would have taken my world record for highest odds on a mug bet to come in. Um, and the bet was disallowed. Apropos of nothing, in the bookie bashing news, there was a Times leading um, commentary on gambling legislation. So this is quite prominent. This isn't Racing Post. This isn't a random Twitter article. This is the... In the Times newspaper, they have three commentary articles um, for the day, and this was one of the three, so it couldn't be more sort of prominent. So what are they talking about? Well, we should set up a notice. Um, the government are looking at gambling legislation, and the the title of this article is High Stakes. Gambling legislation has failed to keep up with technology. A government review offers the chance to protect those failed by an irresponsible industry. Here we go again. Okay. Gone are the days. I'm not going to read it all. Let's take out some. Um, let's take out some key points from this. Gone are the days when the names of provincial building societies and dealerships and local newspapers adorned English football shirts. Today's clubs in the top divisions are far more likely to be sponsored by bookmakers. Their ubiquity is a sign of just how much Britain has changed since Tony Blair liberalised the betting industry with the 2005 Gambling Act. And everything did change in the early 2000s, mostly for the better. For the better. <laughs> just made that up. That's good, isn't it? Um... Banning bookmakers from sponsoring football shirts is the most contentious proposal in an overdue government review of the legislation, which starts this week. This week coming up, PDC World Championships. Um, they may be ruining the dart Christmas by, um, well, ruining the ease with which bettors can access uh, betting platforms. Blanket bans of the kind suggested for football teams are bound to make the headlines, hence their attraction to ministers, but in this case, the proposal is not without merit. So, I mean, okay. The whole discussion of whether betting firms should be allowed on um, on the shirts of football teams Without sounding harsh, I don't care. It, uh, um, there are probably people who are more clever than me who have got evidence that I can't see over the harm or no, or whatever that this does, the the social and economic um, effects that something like that has on society, that they can come to conclusions that I possibly can't do. And so it doesn't really affect me in any way whatsoever. And so rather selfishly, I'm going to park the whole issue of betting firms on um football team shirts and say you, you do what you think is best for everybody um but there's a little bit more to this legislation it goes on as uh, the law is stuck in the wrong decade apparently um Grimy high street bookmakers have been replaced by computers and smartphones capable of offering access to dozens of betting sites at once, unhindered by lockdowns or social distancing and aggressively marketed online. The law is stuck in the wrong decade. As betting shops close and online gaming takes its place, the old adage that the house always wins is truer than ever. 
Last year, total losses for British gamblers ballooned to £14.4 billion. To, to be fair, if I had to estimate the number, I would have put it higher than that. I would have thought that it was higher than that, but there you go. Problem gamblers, here we go, of which there are an estimated 430,000 in Britain are the biggest losers. I'd be very interested to see what the metric is for that. Um, I mean, if you were to survey 100 people and say, did you lose more than you wanted to in the last month? Perhaps um, uh, um, a couple of percent might have said yes. So does that mean that 2% of people are problem gamblers? What if it was 10%? Well, I, it all depends on how you phrase the question. I don't know. Maybe it was phrased fairly. But these predominant, predominantly young unemployed men, all right, okay, have been failed by an industry that has adapted with alacrity what does that mean is that slowness to their digital age now come on why did we have to say that they were young okay yeah they're young and yeah they're men why are they necessarily unemployed last year nhs england warned that almost one in 50 men aged between 16 and 24 have a gambling problem okay interesting one in 50 even if one believes the state attitude to gambling should owe more to the monte carlo than methodism the public health crisis cannot go on over the coming months, ministers will consider measures that should prove far less divisive and far more effective than curbs on sports sponsorships. By far the most important of these are limits on online stakes, prizes and losses. Can we all, each and every one of us that have been stake restricted in the past, just take a second to laugh at that sentence? Nearly two years have passed since the government's belated imposition of a £2 maximum stake on fixed odds betting terminals, which once allowed gamblers to bet £150 every 20 seconds and were so addicted, addictive as to have drawn comparisons with crack cocaine. Yet as long as punters are able to bet unlimited sums on virtual casino games and slot machines online, they can effectively choose to have an unregulated FOBT in their pocket. Bookmakers have failed to close this loophole. It is right that ministers should so proposals for stricter checks on whether regular gamblers can afford their habit are welcome nor is there any good reason for betting firms to oppose the mandatory sharing of data on their most vulnerable customers uh, and then we go through some stuff about uh, vulnerable customers which um, i think we are all in agreement with that um more has to be done for identifying and helping anybody that is vulnerable. Uh, and I, for one, welcome proposals for um, checking that people can afford to gamble. Um, that might sound odd. I, define, I see myself as very much liberal and each person is responsible for their own actions but at the same time we also whilst maintaining this level of responsibility have a responsibility for the slowest members of society right and those that are doing harm to themselves need to be stopped the problem the real big problem well there are quite a few first of all define problem gamblers now if surely we can identify them or allow them to come forward but how many are not problem gamblers uh, you have sort of two groups of people that we'll we'll all be aware of you have the mug punters who are happy i mean what about the guy that earns the the 25 year old that earns forty thousand pounds has an expendable income and wants to have a few hundred quid every month on his favorite football team 
he is a different kettle of fish to the unemployed guy uh, who is 18 years old who is betting way above his means. And there should definitely be checks on both of them. But that guy who's 40, uh, who's 20 year old earning 40 grand a year, he should be able to somehow opt out of these affordability checks and go, look, I'm okay, Jack. I really am. I've got it completely under control. I've not once thought that I'm losing more there than concerns me. So let me opt out of this whole system. Make it quite difficult to opt out. And you, you really have to be sort of signing away, you know, I ensure that everything is my responsibility. And if I lose too much money, I'm, I'm you know, it, it, it's down to me and I understand that. The opt-out system is the only way that this can work. And then secondly, and slightly more problematically, affordability checks on advantage players are a bit of a joke because the question, um, are you comfortable with your levels of betting, can only be answered with not really when most of what I'm betting on is positive equity. In all honesty, I'm not betting enough and I should be betting more. But of course, you can't say that. And we get, we go back into the realms of muddying the waters between affordability checks and where do advantage players who cannot tell the bookmaker that or the casino that they are advantage players, where do they sit in this Venn diagram? I mean, it, it, the, nobody can put their hands up to the bookmaker and say, hello, I'm an advantage player, so you've got to treat me with slightly different rules because the bookmaker then instantly gets rid of you as an unprofitable customer. Uh, and it um, it's it's a complicated equation that has no solution. Um, is this concerning? Um, well, concerning is not the right word, right? The, the outcome of this will be, hopefully, educated, informed, and sensible. It won't just be a knee-jerk reaction like it is in bookmakers where, okay, everyone's reject, restricted to two-pound stakes, because there's of the the differences with online. First of all, multi-accounting, they haven't figured a way to stop it for their own profit. So how are they going to figure a way to stop it um, for controlling the spending behavior of customers? You see, if I'm restricted to depositing £100 in this bookmaker and I lose it, what is to stop me depositing £100 in bookmaker B. Well, on the high street, at least you can have pictures behind the counter of the do not serve this guy or whatever. But online, you know, I could be doing that in my own name, my wife's name, my granddad. You know, and they can't, if they could do it easily for themselves, for their own profitability, they would have done it so far. So there will have to be massive changes to the monitoring across different all the different bookmakers and different casinos of how much people are depositing. And then comes the problem, what odds are you betting at? You see, I could be deposit £100 and I could be putting a pound on a thousand to one shot in every bet. Or I could deposit £100 I could be putting a pound on a one to a hundred bet and winning a penny in every bet. The variance between both of those strategies is massively different. Um, and you can't just impose restrictions just by deposit levels you have to take into account if you're going to do that what the what the the betting pattern what the betting structure is so deposit limits 
don't uh, deposit limits will not work in my opinion and i think they're going to come to a sensible a sensible conclusion and realize that deposit limits are not going to work and so we've had all the cards and all the goal uh all the corners and now the goal for real sociedad's now um uh, cleaned up there brilliant well no sorry we're on three goals five cards and nine corners so i need one more goal and one more card for every single one to come in let's do it let's do it let's do it i might as well enjoy this whilst i can and i can deposit more than 100 pounds to spread across all of these different bets so there's one more issue right uh, and that issue is what are we talking about when we're talking about gambling um okay you know, the horse race is definitely gambling. It's beatable, but it's gambling. The casino roulette wheel is definitely gambling. It's not beatable, and it's definitely gambling. So on the first one, you could be betting and you could be beating it long term, perhaps by a large ROI, perhaps by a small ROI, perhaps you break even, perhaps you're a massive loser. Uh, with the casino roulette wheel, you're definitely a massive loser. Uh, are we going to consider horse racing and um, roulette as the same. What about in football? What about in different markets where there are different margins in these massively negative EV requester bets or the positive EV requester bets that they don't even know are positive EV? Uh, the margins on one time home and away in football are different to the margins in um, sort of secondary and tertiary markets. All these different things. By the way, they've taken that goal away from VAR, from Sociedad. That could cost me some money. All of these different things have to come in, surely, to the algorithm. But what about lottery tickets? Um, are we going to restrict how much people can buy lottery tickets every month? Actually, I hope we do, because in my opinion, lottery tickets are an absolute evil. They're a scourge. People with low incomes who are desperate to have a dream to get out of whatever situation they're in. Use lottery tickets as a form of escapism. Mentally, there's nothing wrong with that if you need to be escaping and have some hope um, to get out of the situation that you're in. But I do hope that you're only buying a single lottery ticket a week uh, and anyone that buys 10 or 20, that's a major problem, even though it's 10 or 20 pounds, because going back to the variance that we were talking about. So where does lottery sit in all of this? Bingo? Horrible rake on bingo. What about buy-to-let properties? That's a gamble. There's no guarantee that you're going to get your money back on a buy-to-let property. Uh, what about if we're going to do buy-to-let properties, cars that are too expensive for you, meals that are too expensive for you, clothes and holidays that are too expensive for you. The whole thing becomes massively confusing and as mentioned previously i'm very much in the camp that says let people get on with it and have some responsibility for their own financial decisions whilst identifying and offering the maximum amount of support to the slowest members of society having said all of that 
Do you know who also argues that uh, our liberties shouldn't be taken away? And um, just because some people can't control their own emotions and their own responsibilities um, doesn't uh, doesn't mean that my life should be affected. Uh, gun owners, Republican gun owners in the United States of America. Now, of course, there are massive differences between prohibition of gun control and prohibition of gambling access. Um, whilst deaths from gambling are unfortunate and suicides are very real, um, uh, they are paled into insignificance against the risks that um, are can be had from flooding America with just so many guns, it's unbelievable. And when you try and have an argument uh, with the Americans that their guns should be taken away from them, the rest of the world sits back uh, with their legs crossed and folded their arms and going, what are you talking about, the Second Amendment right, you bunch of Muppets? In the UK... We had Dunblane, and then it was no more guns. In Australia, they had Port Macquarie, and then it was no more guns. And in America, they have these mass shootings, and um, the gun lobbyists are so powerful, um, and they keep the guns in the streets, and nobody has a clue why it's happening. And there's a little bit of, as advantage players as well, um, are... Are our arguments against gambling reformations um, similar to those of the gun uh, lobbyists in America? We're just trying to protect something that we feel that we have a right to do because we're scared of change and we don't want it taken away from us. When perhaps there's a major amount of pain and harm being doing and we are selfish in our actions. And if it transpires that taking away my ability to freely gamble and my liberty to place as many high-stakes bets as I want to, um, there is tangible evidence that says that the sacrifices of the advantage players and the liberties of the majority will protect and save real lives, and that difference will be made, and there's not going to be any way to get around it, um, and the evidence is clear and it's obvious, then uh, I'll put my hands up and say, okay, it's time to draw a line under this chapter and go and do something else. I'm very fortunate that I've done very well enough in it up until now. Uh, I'm, I'm comfortable enough that I can take a little bit of a break, regroup and go and find something else to spend my weekends and my evenings doing. And if that really is the outcome of this review of legislation by the government, then we have to question it by all means, but it doesn't mean that we have to dismiss it or get annoyed by it if it is uh, implemented. Hopefully someone somewhere is doing it, not for profit and not for virtual signaling, because but because they've got evidence by the experts that it will make a difference to some people's lives in the long run. So let's have a talk about last week and me being fed up to the back teeth, really. I had a horrible day. Um, I don't remember. Was it the Monday or the Tuesday? It was one of the days last week. So I speak to my friend Ruth. 
um, at about four o'clock, and I get the news that my buddy Carl has passed away, aged 40 bloody three. Um, he had early onset Parkinson's, so it's not like it was out of the blue. But he was one of the boys. He We used to do a lot of festivals together, come around ours for New Year's Eve, um, and last saw him in 2019 in the summer when we were at the pub. And I couldn't understand what he was saying because he couldn't project his voice. And I remember saying to him, if he needed any help um, around the house or anything, I'm going to be there to help him out. And even I wanted to push CrossFit in his direction because I've seen from my sister's gym evidence of how beneficial CrossFit is to people that suffer from Parkinson's and how it can improve their lives. And I was pretty shocked by the news because We'd sort of lost contact with him over the year with me having two small children, with lockdown, um, and I'd always been like, you know, I'm going to get round to it, but just it'll be around the corner, it'll be in the future. I just, you know, I'm too busy right now. And now there isn't any round the corner or in the future with Carl. Um, all those things that I was kind of saying to myself, it can wait, it couldn't wait. And I was overcome, really, by this massive feeling of guilt that I'd let him down and I'd made promises that I didn't um, stick to. And um, that evening, I'm standing in my kitchen and I'm making the kids dinner and they're putting up the Christmas tree um, in the dining room, which is sort of open plan into the kitchen. And so I'm watching them put the Christmas tree up. Um, Christmas tunes are on and alcohol's flowing and I have tears streaming down my face and all I'm thinking of is how seriously upset I am over what's happened with Carl, how I promised that I'd be there and I wasn't there um, and I'm in a little bit of an emotional mess and I get forwarded a question on Discord and the question is, um, this bet doesn't look right. I get completely different numbers to it. And I'm making the kids dinner and I'm looking at the Christmas tree going up and it really wasn't the time for it. And one of the issues is the bet goes in play in about 90 minutes time. And so people want to know if it's good or not. So it needs attention. I could look at it tomorrow, but the bet is kicked off by then. And so there needs to be some sort of reassurance that there hasn't been a mistake and I don't know if there has been a mistake or not because I haven't really looked in depth about what the feedback is it's basically if I don't drop everything at that moment in time and look at it then I can understand that people would see this feedback and think that mistakes had been made and would want to know what the hell was going on so I dropped everything I went to the computer and the crux of the issue was that different inputs were used um I used an input based on XG from Bookie Bashing, and they used an input based on somewhere else. Perhaps the spreads midpoints, I don't know for sure. Um, and there's nothing wrong with the spreads mid midpoints. There really isn't. Uh, the only issue is that, well, I mean, I Bookie Bashing XG is more accurate because we don't go in increments of 0.15, for example. Um, and we take lots of averages and information from exchanges and things like that. So that was all it was. It was it was just a difference of input. The, the calculations were exactly the same. It was just a difference in inputs between the bookie bashing calculator and that. So I explained that. 
when I went down to carry on the kids' dinner, and someone came along and said, it's not that. They've password cracked the um, bookie bashing algorithms, and they've reverse engineered them, and they're all wrong, and all the bets are wrong, and everyone's losing money because they're wrong. And their assumption where they were sort of saying that they were wrong, their assumption, they'd misunderstood what was going on. If we want to get into the mathematics of it, it is a little bit technical and irrelevant, but the mathematics are, um, they were adding up the the booking points. If you add up booking points across a series of games and then convert that into cards, you need a conversion, and um, the conversion formula needs to be different depending on whether there are uh, lots or few cards in each individual game and what would be critical over a set of games is the standard deviation to the normal I mean how many outliers you have and things like that and absolutely you would need that if the structure of the algorithm was to con- to add up all the booking points and then convert the total into cards but we don't do that we take care of that because we first convert the booking points into cards in each individual game using a conversion factor based on whether there are a few or many cards in that uh, booking points in that game and then we sum up the cards that so we bypass the need for a conversion factor for a big large set of games so um his argument was that we were not considering that and my counter argument would be that we do we don't have to consider that and that was a lot of information to get across in a few minutes before kickoff. And when I was a little bit distracted with the kids, with the Christmas tree going up, with the dinner, and quite emotionally upset. And so I just dismissed the guy. I I, I didn't have time to deal with him. Now, the dismissing of the guy, completely my, my fault. I really, the, the way forward should have been, look, let's take this off the table now and come back to it at a period of time where we've all got a little bit more space and room to breathe and we can talk about it as a community, go through the steps and figure out what's going on. That would probably would have been um, the way to do it. I was upset and I was annoyed and so I just dismissed the guy. And by dismissing the guy, I then log off and then it seems like all kind of hellfire breaks loose and a lot had a lot of feedback from people saying that I um, I don't allow conversation, I don't allow debate, um, and because I dismissed the guy, perhaps that's a little bit true. I was dismissing him because I was fully aware of the facts and I knew that it wasn't credible to the effect on the EV of our calculations, but still, um, uh, and also I didn't feel the need to get involved with everyone to explain to them why I didn't want to speak at that moment in time. In the past, I have actually said I can't speak because I've gone to get my kids, and I've had some feedback that that's unacceptable when people are sitting around with money on the line, and perhaps it is, And but I have a life as well. I've got to manage going to get my kids and things like that. So there has to be a sort of rule that let's, let's not talk about the reason I cannot have this discussion just now is because I'm emotionally quite dry. I'm emotionally quite raw um, from something that's gone on in my personal life. I mean, that that is of no consequence to anybody that's got money up on the line um, for these bets. I mean, I've always said these bets that go up on the tracker, they are... Um, you take them as is. For starters, if they're static, they can drift. And secondly, if you disagree, 
with the mathematics behind them, don't bet on them. You know what I mean? Like I'm just saying, these are bets that I think are long-term positive equity bets. We track the results, we put them on the tracker, but honestly, if you don't like them, don't do them. No, no one's forcing anybody's hand. Um, there's a lot of the assumptions that have to go into the calculations that not even the bookmakers agree with themselves. You will find somewhere where if you have certain conditions and you combine two parts of a bet, one bookmaker will pull push the bet out, another will pull them in. There are no there there, there isn't a handbook of exactly how to estimate the probability of a combination of events happening at the same time. It's a lot of it is best guess and refinement over time. And I have what is my current best guess up on the forum. And honestly, it's take it as is. Um, you don't, nobody has to bet on any of them if they think they're wrong. If I uh, look, I I went along and um, signed up to Brothers, and um, I know he is a long-term profitable um, tipster, and I've seen his ROI, and I know it's real. And I signed up at the wrong time, and I just lost hand over fist for months and months and months, and then I stopped betting on him. Not because I thought he was a negative EDP tipster, just because I had had enough and wanted to move on. I'd learned what I needed to learn. I'd experienced what I needed to experience. I wasn't enjoying it. I mainly wasn't enjoying it because I wasn't winning, which is, it was purely just variance. Um, and so I moved on from it, and good luck to him. And it's almost like, you know, it's the same with boogie bashing. You can either enjoy it and agree with it, or you can um, you can disagree with it. Um, but nobody is forcing anybody to bet. Um, one bit of feedback that did stand out was that I am tracking the results. The results are just a little bit under EV. The EV suggests of the 6,500 uh, requester bets and your odds we put up on the site we would have suggested a return of 113 percent of course it's extremely difficult to estimate ev with any degree of precision we've returned 109 percent, so we're a little bit under the ev that we estimated but it is still a return in profit and one bit of feedback was that well some people are losing over the last couple of months and all i would say to that is of course they are of course, some people are losing. For starters, these thin value bets are serious levels of variance. I probably place more of them than anybody else, and I can go a month with losing. So if someone places 10% of the bets that I do, which is reasonable, they could go 10 months without losing. The fact that we people are losing over a month or two months is no surprise whatsoever. I am losing over a month or two months. You have to understand that we could be placing good bets over and over again, and a thousand bets later, we could be break even, we could be a little bit down. That is the nature of thin value betting at 100 to 110% EV. If you don't like the, the prospect of being down a thousand pounds or two thousand pounds, two options. Lower your stakes because you're betting too high. You should never be betting at a level where you're feeling it, right? Or stop doing it. But moaning about it doesn't get you anywhere. Right, those, that's my ten cents about the events of um, about the events of last week. Um, apologies for being dismissive. Um, oh, one more thing, actually. Uh, if you are the person, the kind of person that goes onto social media platforms, 
and puts a laughing, hilariously smiley emoji against somebody's posts where you're laughing at them and not with them, then you're a jerk. And you're also an idiot. And the reason you're an idiot, an idiot is because you've no idea who that person is that you're speaking to. There are a couple hundred members at Bookie Bashing. We've never really grown in size, ever. Um, we often have people changing their names and discords. And of course, we also have people leaving all the time and who have to be replaced for the site to be sustainable and the costs to be covered. A lot of people get upset that we're growing because they see new names. What they don't see is the people who change their names and also the people who, um, who leave, uh, who need to be replaced. So we've never really grown. Within the, the community, I know that we have quite a wide breadth of advantage play experience. We have guys who have made hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of casinos. We, I've, I know somebody who has made um, a six-figure profit at a single horse racing festival with very little knowledge about horse racing itself, just saw an angle edge and was extremely proficient in exploiting it. Uh, there are people in the forum who have um, toured America um, blackjack counting cards um, bricks, uh, doing bricks and mortar casino edges that they found we have um, World Series of Poker main event final table it's, we have a lot of different people with a breadth of experience in the forum hardly any of those guys speak it's, a, it's the same sort of few people that speak all the time, there's nothing wrong with that but it is those people who are mocking others on the side you know what you're doing, you're not encouraging some of the experts that we have to come forward and share their information because it's not a pleasant place to be when people are sarcastically taking others down. Um, the one common factor between all of those different people that I just mentioned is they're all experts in their own domain and nobody, no one of them understands what goes in to the analytics of the edges and the angles of what the other guys are doing. Everyone is a just sort of in their own lane and so um nobody knows everything you can't it's not possible um so there's a need for the information to be shared um and there's a lot of guys on the forum who are extremely well experienced and there just seem to be a few people who throw their weight around and pretend like they know everything and the one thing that I know is that nobody knows everything. I don't know everything. Um, the, all the guys that I mentioned who are experts in their domain don't know everything. So pretending that you know everything about every um, avenue of advantage play, you see right through it. So don't pretend you know everything. It's okay not to know things. And also don't be a jerk and laugh at people instead of laughing with people. Of course, it's absolutely fine. Laughing at them, the person that you end up costing as a result of that action is you. Because the bigger picture is that people just decide not to share information and um, chat and everything like that. Um, I might return to Discord, but really only just as a utility function to pick up coupons, to, po to see when something's not working on the site or anything like that. And if we have to do something in the long run where people want information from me, such as I think that conversation about 
how the booking points were aggregated and the standard deviation model that would be required if we didn't use an alternative version. If any of that wants to be discussed, we can take it offline perhaps and do a whiteboard session and a video and an ask me anything kind of thing um, in the future. For now, um, I just need a little bit of time just to come back to earth and gather my senses. So that's the uh, discussion I wanted to have over Discord on the Bashcast this week. This month, at the end of the year, the end of a vintage year, <laughs> not really, um, uh, we have, obviously we've gone through the fact that Christmas starts uh, on Tuesday with the PDC darts, um, which carries us along with uh, afternoon and evening sessions, so if you like your darts and there's no reason why you shouldn't like your darts, then it's back to back towards the end of the month. Um, horse racing, King George VI chase at Kempton wraps up the year for the horse racing. On what's probably been, I think, my most profitable year in horse racing for five or six. It's been really good. To be fair, the, te- the, the profits peaked maybe early November and then just hit a small downswing, but I was above the EV before then anyway, so it was, it was coming. It was coming. Um... Champions League and Europa are done and dusted for 2020, which means that next week, midweek, we've got some Premiership, some Championship, as we do next weekend. Um, and then again, of course, on Boxing Day, which is a Saturday. Oh, there you go. Boxing Day, where... Um, that's the day that bloody coronavirus restrictions are allowing me to go up and spend the with my family and um, in the evening you'd think Man City Newcastle United would be the TV game at 8pm there's also Sheffield United Everton but you'd think it'd be Man City Newcastle and um, I've got my Newcastle United supporting lineage through my dad's side of the family and if he can make it up till 8 o'clock because he's an old boy now he gets tired but if he can make it up to 8 o'clock that'd be a good way to spend Christmas watching Newcastle United ship 8 goals to Manchester City and Aguero and Jesus um, and that'll pretty much wrap up the sport for the end of the year. Whatever it is you guys are doing. I hope you have a very peaceful and nice holiday break that you spend with your family. And uh, sort of reflect on 2020, a year of pandemics and lockdowns and cancelled trips. I took my daughter to an earthquake for her fifth birthday and when two house chains collapsed, when I bought a car that couldn't be delivered from the showdown without breaking down repeatedly month after month and when I ended up in hospital with first-degree burns following a delicious but painful chili beef episode. As my friend Bess, who looks after the marine nutrition at the penguin enclosure at Midland Safari Park, would say, Merry Christmas, and if you can't be good at least try and serve a youthful purpose. Did the earth move fire and Did the earth move fire and Did the earth move fire and Did the earth move fire and